Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Podcast. My name is Susan Freeman, and we welcome professionals who share valuable insights that lift others in professional services, whether it be through personal storytelling or sharing best practices in their own professions, they help to change the world for the better. Listeners can tune in to Freeman Means Business on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and other podcast channels on the web. Today, our guest is Tim Corcoran of Corcoran Consulting Group. Tim, welcome, and tell us a little bit about your background and services. Well, hi there, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to chat about what it is I do. I'm a management consultant to law firms and law departments, and my primary uh, focus is helping the leaders of these organizations adapt to the profitable disruption of outdated business models, which is a fancy way of saying that the law firm and law department space, both buyers and sellers, are a little bit broken. Or maybe a more optimistic view is they're not taking advantage of the market disruption to improve their enterprises and deliver better service and improve their financial performance. So my job is as a business person to help them uh, understand how to adapt to these changing times and thrive. You must be very, very busy. <laughs> very. Uh, I know that's a tough transition for a lot of law firms, especially since most lawyers aren't business people. So you sort of are, in my view, a simultaneous interpreter. You're able to speak legal and business and have them understand, hopefully, what you're trying to say in helping them make that transition. Um, I want to tell the viewers really quickly that um, at the last LMA annual meeting in New Orleans, I hooked up with him just quite by happenstance at the airport, and we shared a taxi ride over to the conference hotel. And folks, I'll tell you, I got about $8,000 worth of uh, good advice from Tim. He was totally worth the tax, the cost of the taxi ride. Um, the man is well worth every penny. So um, tell us a little bit about why you were compelled to offer these services. Uh, sure. Well, my career has been in the corporate sector for a little over two decades, I was a business executive, you know, rising up through the organization of a typical business and learning how to be a general manager and ultimately a CEO of a publicly traded company. Now, during that time, my clients were always law firms or law departments. So the products and services we sold were to help those organizations uh, run their, their enterprises more effectively. I found that to properly convey the value of the services and products we offered, I had to explain to the leaders of these businesses um, really how an effective business runs and why these tools and services we were offering would benefit them. A lot of times it was like talking to a wall because they didn't believe that they were in a business, first of all, or second of all, that there were ways um, that businesses run that could be applied and benefit the, the legal space, whether in a law department or a law firm. So I, uh, I found myself educating them on basic business concepts in anticipation of selling the services and products we, we offered. Um, I was then recruited by a boutique consulting firm to help them uh, translate business concepts to law firms and law departments, and then I went out on my own. I've been doing that now for almost a decade on my own, and uh, really my job is to help these leaders of these organizations understand the changing legal marketplace. It's a, it's a disruptive time, but it doesn't mean it should be a troubling time. Um, I think there's a lot of folks who talk about, you know, adapt or die. I take a far more optimistic view, and that is adapt and thrive. There's a great opportunity. There's missed opportunities uh, for legal 
professionals today um, who are running these enterprises or these businesses. And I get energized when I can teach them something about how their, their enterprise is a business, how business concepts and lessons learned from other industries can apply. And then they take that and they improve their own financial performance. They improve their client satisfaction and they improve the quality of their work product. That to me is a good day. Well, tell me what energizes you about that. What, what is it you love most? Well, these are smart people. Um, don't, don't make any mistake. They're very smart people, but they've never been trained in how to run a business. That's my forte. That's what I do um, for all these years. And so what energizes me is when these very smart people, the little light bulb that appears above their head and they suddenly connect the dots. They realize that they're not running a, you know, an academic institution within a corporation, as, as the case may be with a law department, or they're not running an academic institution that is there to help provide um, detailed legal advice to businesses. Um, they're really there to serve as an outsource provider to help business people make business decisions of which there are legal aspects. And so as a result, everything they do should be oriented around their client's needs, their client satisfaction. Um, they should be oriented around what the market's willing to pay for these services, not just what their costs are. And so I get jazzed and energized when these people figure it out. They really start to understand that the lessons of business are lessons they can embrace. And I have to tell you, there's on multiple occasions, these very, very smart people have taken the ideas that I sort of germinate and they run with it in places that I could never take them. And so it's, it's really fun for me to see them take these ideas and run with them and succeed um, in, in ways that they didn't even think possible. They thought it's a tough market and we, we should try to resist change and hold on to what we once knew. And once they realize that this market is presenting a fantastic opportunity for growth, um, it's just fun to watch. So you're just sort of helping them to alleviate any fear of going down a path that's already paved or that the market is paving for them. Yeah, and I'm not sure it's fear, although I think there's some of that. It's also just it's, there's a natural risk aversion with lawyers. And so there's this, there's this mantra that lawyers are resistant to change or, or can't innovate. I, I don't necessarily buy into that. And frankly, I, I think they're quite... Uh, adaptable and I think they're quite innovative but I think that's in the area they know best and that's their legal work it's when we're talking about how to run their business that they don't really think about it because they've never been trained so I think it's our job the pundit class the, those who write and speak and educate and consult and advise it's our job to do a better job of selling them that there is greater risk in the status quo than the opportunity presented to them so if we do a better job of painting a picture of the future which can show them to be thriving if they make some adaptations to the way they operate, uh, the way they motivate their people, the way they run their infrastructure, the types of people they hire, the types of people they promote to leadership roles, those adaptations can lead to great things. And so I think it's not so much a fear or resistance to change, it's the risk averse. And we've got to do a better job of showing them that the future holds great promise. And that's what I think I do well. I think that you do too. And I think there are several law firms across the country that might agree with me. Do you think that maybe leadership might be an issue? Well, that to me is probably the single greatest opportunity for law firms and law departments today. We need better leaders in these businesses. Now, I don't mean that the people that are in these roles today are somehow inept or uh, incompetent or, or not clever people, but they're often in the position they're in because they're fantastic lawyers or they've got a gregarious personality, or they've got political capital in their organizations. And those are all welcome attributes, don't get me wrong. But those aren't necessarily the same attributes that are going to help them 
run a business. And so uh, we see it at the practice group level. We see it at the firm executive committee level and the firm chairman level, uh, where someone who's a fantastic lawyer may not be the greatest mentor. They may not be the greatest person to uh, set a vision and motivate others to follow. They may not have a head for numbers. Um, they might have an innate leadership quality that people may want to follow them, but they don't have the capability of setting a, a strategic vision without some assistance. So I think there's an opportunity. In a law firm, the currency is practicing uh, well, being a great practitioner, and building a book of business. I think there's a third aspect of helping to run a law firm effectively, and that is a mind for business. And we don't necessarily reward or foster those capabilities and skills in those who are coming up through the ranks as lawyers. And so the people we end up promoting into leadership roles are often miscast. And so it's, it's not necessarily their fault. They haven't been trained in these roles, but we've pushed down those folks who have great business acumen, even if they're not the greatest lawyer or the greatest rainmaker. So it's finding that balance. I think we can do a better job. And once we do, we're finding that there are people who are fantastic at running a law firm business, but they may not want to practice law full time. They may not be the greatest rainmaker, but they're fantastic and everyone should, should, uh, should follow them in, in running the business in the same way that, you know, rainmakers should generate the work and some people should do the work. Others people should, uh, should manage the enterprise. And I think that division of duties is, is what uh, is facing us. There's a nice change in the marketplace where they're more capable leaders now than there were 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't think that um, you can find any one individual who's the best at all three of those things. The the nature of the superlative best, meaning you, you can't be the best at all three things. So if law firms would allow for someone to be a great business person and not uh, practice as much as they uh, would have otherwise practiced while they're running the firm, that would allow them the time to be a business leader versus just practice law. So yeah, I mean, how do you find that person who's a great rainmaker plus a great practitioner plus a great firm manager? You know, that's a difficult find. It is. And they exist. Don't get me wrong. But the challenge is not every one of us is what in baseball we'd call a five tool player. You, know, you could do it all. You can do everything equally well. You're going to be an all-star uh, in, in any aspect of the game. Well, most of us can't do that, but a lot of law firms were founded by people like that. And so they build a firm in their image with this expectation that everyone should do everything equally well. And it also creates this perception that every contribution has equal value. So whether or not you're generating a $5 million book of business or whether or not you're that service partner with technical skill that everyone wants working on their matters, or you're that person who's a great client relationship manager and you manage the resources and keep to the budget, that all of these contributions matter and they should all be measured the same way and value the same way. Well, the reality is in any enterprise, there are different contributions, different people do them well, and they may elicit different rewards um, depending on the particular strategy of the practice or the firm. And so figuring out how to reward people properly is a management challenge. And I think just saying everyone should do everything well and we're going to pay everyone based on a simple metric or two that, uh, you know, masks the, the contributions of some and, and over rewards the contributions of others. That's sort of a old fashioned way of thinking. I think a little more nuanced approach is to find the capabilities that people do really, really well, reward them for doing that. And then, um, you know, align those activities and those rewards with the firm strategy. Yeah. So compensation, how about that? The, the, the terrible, nobody wants to have that conversation, you know, about compensation. And, and that's one of the questions I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that's one of the questions you ask up front 
when you begin a relationship with a firm, what's your compensation plan or system here? Yeah, compensation is a, is a pretty critical aspect of, of management. And it's often considered the third rail of law firm management, whether from the insiders, the folks leading the firm, or from management consultants who say, you know what, no one's gonna change the partner compensation plan, so let's focus on this other stuff. But here's the reality. If in an enterprise, there's a compensation plan that says, do this and we will pay you, but there's a strategy that says, do this other thing. Well, when your compensation plan and your strategy are in conflict, your compensation plan is your strategy. That's what people will do. And I don't say that as some sort of characterization of, of lawyers as greedy and all they're motivated by is money. I don't mean that at all. What I mean well, no is- no one's ever said that. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shocking. I, I don't know that lawyers are any greedier or any less greedy than the rest of the populace. I think some people are motivated by income and some people are not. But here's the thing, a compensation plan is not just a way to reward people with dollars, right? Or euros or pounds or whatever the case may be for my client base. It is really a way to say, here are the behaviors that we believe will further the long-term interests of the firm and will benefit you personally. Right, And so it's aligning those behaviors. Do what you want to do to maximize your income or do what you want to do to maximize your happiness. Those things further our strategy. It's when there's a disconnect that someone's got to choose between their own economic self-interest or their own happiness quotient or doing what's best for the firm. Well, I don't call people greedy in that case. What I say is management has uh, you know, not done its job of aligning those behaviors with the firm strategy. So that's an opportunity today in, in the market where we have to have new behaviors, drive efficiency and drive client satisfaction and drive, drive long-term client engagement and so on, which is very different than in the past, which is get the highest rate for the most hours you can bill right now, today, and we'll worry about next year, next year. Well, to align those behaviors, we need to adjust the compensation. And so the, the brick wall I've run into is trying to teach people these better behaviors when in fact they're incented to do the exact opposite. So right. now I, I consider compensation the first conversation and all the other changes to take place in the law firm should be secondary to making sure the incentives are aligned. Right, right. And so often it's not in the best interests of a client-centric approach, you know, the compensation system. It, it, you know, how can you be client-centric and still be um, firm-centric at the same time if, if you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> go on. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, in the old market, there was an absolute dichotomy, a competition. If we're going to build a max rate for the max hours, the law firm wins and the client loses. Or the client now pushes back and says, I want a discount or I want a flat fee, and now the law firm loses. But the reality is the market is shifting to a model where everyone's interests are aligned. The client is saying, I want efficiency. And when they say they want efficiency, what they mean is, I want predictability in budgets. I want people who can demonstrate that they can do this work at a high quality level, which I will measure. And I want them to be able to do so in a, in a way that's profitable for them and beneficial to us. Well, what a perfect driver for efficiency. A law firm with experienced lawyers can say, we've done this a thousand times. We can break it down into its component parts. We can employ process improvement, project management, create fixed fee budgets or, or more predictable hourly budgets and please that client. And they're being rewarded for that experience. They're profiting from efficiency. Whereas we think that what the market wants is the lowest cost provider. Well, they don't. Clients don't want to have that risk. So I think that the market's actually giving us a great roadmap to say law firm and clients are aligned now, where in the past there was an innate competition. 
So I have often found when lawyers say, oh, no, my client wants me to lower their legal expenses, they jump to offer a discounted rate when there's so many other solutions, especially in the face of the technology that's available. Like you said, efficiency and, and um, you know, making making certain that we're aligned with the client's operations, like trying to achieve the same goals without lowering your rates. You can do that with dashboards and with certain tools that are now available in the marketplace. Not duplicating efforts. I had one attorney long time ago, long, long time ago, sending uh, documents by way of mail, snail mail, email, and fax, if you remember what those are. So the same document by three different methods and the new CFO at this longtime client noticed and thought that the company was being triple billed when really the attorney thought he was really covering all the bases. And that made for a sticky conversation or exit interview, if you will. And, you know, it was not, not, it was all, it, it could have been avoided through a, a client conversation or a client interview. Uh, nowadays, we have tools that can facilitate, you know, more efficient processes and lowering legal expenses without discounting rates. Um, let me ask you this. What, what's the one thing law firms or law departments can do differently um, that would better position them to adapt to the changing marketplace? Um, you know, this can be controversial. <laughs> well, I do think... <laughs> Yeah, I do think uh, we touch on this. The, the one killer app for law firms or law departments in adapting to the changing times is to find better leaders. And I say this with all kindness and gentleness towards the folks who have traditionally held these roles, but being a good lawyer or being a good rainmaker is not the same as being a good business person. And on the law department side, where we're not necessarily rainmaking, and maybe even a GC isn't practicing law full time, it's understanding that the client's needs are what should drive your efforts. So for a law firm, it's the in-house law department. For the in-house law department, it's the business management. And early on in this conversation, you talked about marrying business and the law. Well, I think there's three parts, right? There's the law firm, there's the law department, and then there's the business management. And I think a lot of times this, this back and forth competition between the law firms and the law departments forgets that we people, the, the, the executives sitting back in the business trying to run a business are the ones who are frustrated with both parties. And I think when all three of these folks can get on the same page, it, it, it uh, changes everything. And that's what I think we need in today's law firm and law departments is better leaders, folks who are trained business people who are excellent lawyers, I'm sure, but their primary job is to, to organize the resources in such a way that they improve the business velocity of the client. And, uh, you know, if you want to, be an academic, go to law school and teach. But if you want to drive a business forward, um, whether you're in the law department or in your law firm, focus on business philosophy and the client needs and you'll, you'll, you'll change everything. Let me ask you this on a, a general, I mean, you can't, you know, this is just a general question, but for general counsels, do they align more with a business mindset or a legal mindset? Uh, that's a great question. General counsel in the past used to be running a law firm within a corporation. And they would be the ones who at budget time would say to their colleagues, uh, boys and girls, I'm sure it must be really easy to predict the cost of oil or understand if we're going to have any products liability issues next year or figure out if we're going to have labor unrest. But I and the legal department, I have no way to predict it. So um, I will not be held to a budget. And we in the boardroom would laugh and laugh and laugh when times were good. And then when times got tough 10 years ago in this major global recession, we said, you know what? I think rather than treat this as an amusing anecdote, we're gonna treat you as an idiot 
Like you really <laughs> don't understand what we're trying to do here. And right. so if you can't manage your legal function, we'll do it for you. And so as a business unit, we would assign procurement or finance overlords, or we would have now the legal operations folks come on board and we'd say, if you can't run your function like a business unit, then we'll do it for you. And to their credit, many in-house counsel adapted and those who didn't moved on to uh, hopefully go to a nice corner office in their former law firm's um, you know, houses. But <laughs> yeah. uh, what we now have is a, a really uh, important trend in law departments where we have folks who are more focused on running their business unit um, like a business unit. But of course, their job is to balance the risk of the business and the legal uh, complications that arise with conducting business in today's complicated global marketplace. So we're not saying that you're beholden to the business people. We're saying you are a stopgap measure to ensure that the, the company is compliant and, and you know meeting its obligations as a corporate citizen of the today's world. But you're also, you know, beholden to budget and shareholders and so on. So it's finding that balance that I think the modern in-house counsel is doing very, very well. Um, and it's a very different role than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I had someone tell me they felt the role of the chief procurement officer was strictly a fad. What do you think of that comment? Well, I think that um, I do a lot of law firm partner retreats. And one of the most common uh, activities at a law firm retreat is having a panel of clients and I'll often moderate that panel and sooner or later there's going to be a general counsel on the panel that'll look at the audience and say I run my law department with an iron fist I will never allow a procurement officer to influence my decisions of who I hire and everyone claps and claps and claps because no one <laughs> wants the bean counters to uh, to take over the business but here's the thing as a CEO I would never I would never advise that general counsel to say that in front of the CEO. If the CEO says procurement's gonna come in and help you run your business, they're not saying you're doing a poor job. They're not necessarily saying you've gotta save money. What they're saying is procurement's job as a business function is to provide analytics, to create a framework to measure how do we deliver this work in this organization, this department, how do we do so at a quality level that we can measure, how do we do so at the right price and make sure we're not overpaying or underpaying, and how do we make sure that we've locked these relationships in for the long haul so we reduce our organizational risk? So procurement can come in and they could actually endorse the decisions the in-house counsel have made by saying, yes, you've, you've made the right selections. You've got the right. right law firms. You've negotiated the right rates. You know, great job. Or they could come in and say, hmm, as it turns out, you have used brand strength or a global footprint as a proxy for quality. But as it turns out, you're measuring quality poorly. Here are some ways that you have told us that you want the legal work done. We've created a, a matrix. And now when we apply that over your outside counsel, we find that a number of your law firms that you're using are wanting in that regard. So we can either come up with a joint program to get them up to speed, or we can go and find other law firms that do this well. And, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have to be one of these big global brands. Like, let's get away from this notion of everyone's heard the phrase in the corporate space, you know, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Well, in the law firm space, that was translated as no one ever got fired for hiring Skadden. Well, I'm not picking on Skadden here, but there's a lot of global law firms that in-house counsel traditionally would hire because they said, well, they're big, they're good, they're expensive. I'm immune from criticism of some deal that we have goes south because I hired the right law firm. Right. Right. Procurement comes in and says, no, we've got a, a, a weighted matrix of how to measure the quality. And, you know, the, the brand strength of the firm is one minor aspect of that. So procurement can be your best friend uh, for those organizations that, that uh, 
dismiss procurement as unnecessary, I think they're missing the point. Their job is analytics. So if you do analytics really well, and there's a lot of legal operations folks who are doing that now in law firms and law departments, well, you know, maybe you don't need procurement to do that for you, but uh, there's still a partnership. And when the CEO says procurement's coming, um, you say no at your peril. Yes, I agree. So, so I would think that for outside counsel to think that procurement is a fad is bad thinking, wrong thinking, dangerous thinking. Well, it's a, it's a clear reflection that they don't understand how business works because a CEO doesn't give it, doesn't give their business units a vote on whether or not they want to be fiscally responsible. You either are fiscally responsible or you're out the door. So a law firm thinking it's a fad really hasn't been listening to their clients. Gotcha. Gotcha. I would agree. Uh, what actionable advice or tips can you give lawyers? Well, I think the lawyers who are practicing law, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Quality always matters. I think the lawyers who are running the organizations, um, I think it's about finding the balance. You are focused as a law firm enterprise on one year at a time, maximizing profitability, taking all that profit, distributing, and then starting over. Well, I think there's a long-term option here as well. And certainly the, the younger partners coming up through the ranks want to see a business that's going to survive for 10, 15, 25 years. And the folks who are at the tail end of their career might be thinking, well, how do we harvest as much as we can over the next couple of years? Any business has this challenge. And as uh, uh, Jack Welsh once said, you know, the, the famed uh, CEO of GE, he said, it's easy to manage for the short term. It's easy to manage for the long term, but it's really hard as a general manager to address both. And so that's what I suggest that the lawyer leaders have to focus on is trying to find that right balance between how do we harvest the profits that our partners want today, but on the other hand, make sure that we have a sustainable, healthy enterprise that's here for the long haul and committed to the long-term best interests of our clients because that's the best way to ensure the long-term health of the firm. So Tim, I have to say you're funny. I happen to know that you weren't funny on this and I didn't expect you to be, but you often are funny. And I like that you reference baseball. I was going to bring the fact up that there is a famous pro ball player. I'm sure people ask you about Tim Corcoran all the time, the pro ball player. Uh, is that true? Do people mention that? I may have, outside of uh, Tim Corcoran, the baseball player's family, I may have the largest collection of Tim Corcoran baseball cards that people have given me um, over the years saying, hey, did you know there used to be this baseball player named Tim Corcoran? I bet you didn't know that. Here's a baseball card from my personal collection. I oh. thought you'd get a kick out of it. So I've got a couple dozen of them in a, in a box somewhere with people, the people keep seeing, which I think is fantastic. I should come up with my own baseball card and give it back. You should. Oh, that would be great. You'd be great. So Timothy H., I have a little fun fact for you. Timothy H. Corcoran, the pro ball player, happened to be born, he was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which was where I was raised and went to high school. So lived much of my life there. Um, I do not know Timothy H., but I'm proud to say I know Timothy B. So thank you <laughs> well, so much. <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure. On behalf of all the Timothy Corcorans, we're all charming and <laughs> handsome and good looking and we're, we're all delighted true. to participate in your podcast. That's true. And this may be the podcast that I absolutely should have allowed video on, folks. So that being the closing of our podcast, let me ask one last question. How can folks reach you on uh, social media and elsewhere if they want to get in touch with you, Tim? Sure. Um, my website is bringintim.com. Pretty easy to remember. My email is tim at bringintim.com. And I can be found on Twitter at at T Corcoran. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? 
I think it's a great opportunity. This disruptive market, it's not a thing to fear. It's not adapt or die. This is a time to adapt and thrive. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. It was fun. My pleasure. Bye-bye.